The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. So let's turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We heard the story of the prodigal son. And in my, every time I hear that title, The Prodigal Son, I can't help but think of our dear brother George Fox, who has gone on to be with the Lord, but he always corrected the title of that and said, it's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal father. He's the one who gives, because prodigal, the word prodigal means giving and lavish. And uh, the son was prodigal, I guess, in losing his money with all of his buddies uh, in his, uh, how did uh, Nate's translation say, reckless living. But actually, I don't want to focus on the son who spent his inheritance in thinking about that passage. Uh, I want you to think about the son who remained. And here, the son who remained, I'll just read it to you again here. He says to his father, so he's out working in the field when the son comes home. And, And He's out in the field. He doesn't even know the party started. He doesn't know his brother came home. He's working hard for his father in the field. And he comes back and he sees the lights and he hears the party and the music and the laughing. And he thinks, what's going on? I don't know about this. I'm the son. I'm the one who's been faithful. I'm running the property and I don't know about a party. And he finds out that his brothers come home and he says, There in verse 28, he was angry, refused to go in. So his father comes out and he entreats him. He's like, son, come on, come enjoy the party. And he answered his father and said, look, these many years I've served you. Let me remind you, father, of everything I've done for you and how I've served you. And I haven't just served you today. I've served you all these years. The implication is since that other guy left. He was the older brother, right? And he took his inheritance and now I have to make up the slack. I have to pick up the pieces and I have to step up and I've served you all these years. And he says, I've never disobeyed your command. Not once. I've always done what you've asked. And then he says this, yet you've never given me a goat. You've never given me a goat. So that I might have a party with my friends. (laughs) But with when your son, this son of yours came, he got the goat with his friends who were prostitutes, he says in verse 30. And you killed the fattened calf for him and partied and celebrated over this guy. And I love what the father says to him here in the next verse. He says to him, son, you've. You are always with me. You've always been with me. You've always been here. And guess what that means? All of my goats are yours. You didn't need me to give you a goat because all of my goats are yours. Do you see what the father's saying there? All I have is yours. The reason you didn't have a goat is because you didn't ask or you didn't take it. It was already yours to have. And you could have partied with your friends with the young goat and had a feast. And and remember, Jesus, when he preaches this parable, he's preaching to a crowd of people and he's talking about there's these lost sheep earlier, right? And then he talks about the prodigal son. But in this crowd are both 
those who are lost and those who think they're healthy and don't need a physician, the Pharisees. And so he's preaching to both of them, and what he exposes in the Pharisaical heart, the legalistic heart, is you don't even realize that those of you who know the Scripture, those of you who say you've obeyed every command and never disobeyed and always served, all of the riches of the Father are already at your disposal. And the church at Galatia, we've seen that they had believed the gospel. They were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. But they saw the joy of being brought in because of what Christ accomplished. And they were full of joy and hope and freedom. And then they were bewitched. They were, it was like someone cast a spell on them. And this public portrayal of Christ is crucified before their eyes in which they took so much joy. Now they were being told, you need to do all of these extra things in order to reach the second level of Christianity. In order to be really spiritual, in order to be really near God, you need to do all these Jewish requirements. In fact, in, in chapter 6 of Galatians, in verses 12 and 13, Paul finally mentions that they were being told they needed to be circumcised. Chapter 6, verse 12, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, he says, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. He says these Judaizers, these religious leaders, they say they keep the law, and they're telling you if you want to be spiritual, you got to keep the law too, but they don't really keep the law. And really all they want is to boast in the fact that they've got you as one of their followers. And so these Judaizers were pushing circumcision on these Gentile converts. And for them, circumcision was the basis for their boasting. And what it became was a religious ability and not free grace. And Paul says the gospel's at stake here. This is, this is an issue of the gospel. When you add works to grace, it becomes a gospel issue. It becomes another gospel. That's what he said in chapter one. What they're preaching is another gospel. And you heard the gospel that I gave to you that you received from me. And it wasn't man's gospel. There is no other gospel. It came directly from God. The Lord Jesus revealed it to me, Paul says. And if you preach another gospel other than this gospel, you're accursed. And then he goes into chapter four and he says, if you believe this message, you're under bondage again. And what Paul is so concerned about is he's concerned about the fact that to answer this question, what is it that delivers you? What is it that liberates you? What is it that changes you? What is it that gives you real freedom? And all of the keeping of the law, any works that you do, it never gives you freedom. It never delivers. It never changes. It does not liberate. In fact, Paul says, if you want to keep the whole law, if you want to be under these rules, you're obligated to keep everything. And since you can't keep everything, you haven't in the past and you won't in the future, you're back into bondage again. And so the cross is the only answer to what liberates and frees and delivers. The sufficiency of Christ in his work is what liberates and frees and delivers. The cross is the, me is the end of any boasting. And these Judaizers, Paul says in chapter 6, really their goal is to have pride in boasting that they've converted you. 
So their motives are not even pure. And the cross humbles our pride, doesn't it? Because it tells us you're worse than you think. You could never achieve righteousness or deliverance or freedom by whatever you do, even the best of your deeds. But Christ loved you so much, he came and he did what you could never do. He lived the life you could never live. He died as a substitute to pay the penalty you could never pay. And in trusting in Christ and resting your faith in him, you're delivered and you're freed and you're liberated. So this passage here in Galatians 5 really answers two questions. The first is, where is true hope found? Let's look at chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. First thing Paul says in verses 2 to 4 is that there is hopelessness when you try to rely upon law-keeping. There's hopelessness. If you're honest... If you delude yourselves, you can actually, you know, narrow and lower the standard and say, well, I keep it and I'm actually better than those other people. But you're lying to yourself. Because if you take God's righteous character seriously and that he's holy, you realize you could never keep the law. You could never measure up. There is no hope in it. Paul had already said that the law was never intended to save. It was intended to condemn And so if you try to use the law for a purpose it was never intended for, you're going to end up in a ditch. Make shipwreck of the faith. Here he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He'll be of no benefit to you is the idea. Think about how dangerous that is. We sing songs all the time. We talk about the benefit of the benefit and advantage of believing in Christ. We talk about union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ, that we have a new identity. We're declared righteous. We're declared saints and holy. We're adopted into God's family. We also have a new nature. We're born again. We have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, changing us, renewing us. We're delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Christ, The Father's wrath is propitiated, Romans says. It's satisfied. God is satisfied with His Son. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath, when the cup is passed to us, there's nothing left in it to drink. Instead, it becomes a cup of blessing that we get because we're in Christ. We have... Jesus being our sacrifice once for all for sin so that there's no more sacrifice to be made. In Him, He is our high priest. We are His, He is our elder brother. In Christ, He is our friend. In Christ, He is our master and Lord. And we're part of His kingdom that will last forever. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. 
That's everything we have in Christ. And here Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Galatians, Christ is of no benefit to you. All of those things I mentioned, and there's so many more, ease of no benefit. This is how dangerous thinking that we can earn God's favor by works is. This is why he's later going to say a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take much leaven to cause dough to rise and permeate all of the dough and cause the dough to rise. In the same way, it doesn't take much legalism to infect our lives and lead us astray. In fact, this is the default switch of our hearts, I think. We would rather say, give us a list of rules, give us a list of do's and don'ts, and as long as I can check that box, I'm happy with where I'm at with the Lord. We'd rather do that than have a relationship with the true and living God and draw near to Him and have the messiness of brokenness in our own lives, conviction of sin, true repentance, true reconciliation, true seeking and hungering after righteousness. That just seems too hard. Can't I just put it in my daily planner? And check it off? Can't I just have my smartphone tell me what my list is? And then he says in verse 3, if if you try to, if you accept circumcision, you accept everything that comes with it. You're obligated to keep the entire law, which will never happen. And by the way, Paul knows this from personal experience. Turn over to Philippians 3. We're going to uh, actually mention this passage a couple times today. Philippians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 2. And this is strong language. This is like PG-13 language that Paul's using here. Look out for the dogs. And he's not talking about Fido. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, you want to know what it looks like to live under the law? Look at me, Paul says. Exhibit A, I'm it. I'm the guy, and let me tell you what all of it got me. Jack squat, nothing, zip, nada, zilch. He goes on to say, whatever gain I had, verse 7, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as a big pile of dung is what that word means. Rubbish. That's a polite word in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear what he's saying? I gave the early part of my life, Paul says, to the law. 
I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was born into the right family. I was born under the right conditions. I lived the right kind of life. The law would say I'm blameless. I am a Jew of Jews. And all of it is a big heap of poo apart from Christ. That's what he says. It's a big pile of manure. It's worthless. In some ways, we would say manure is more valuable. At least you could fertilize some fields with it. Turn back to Galatians. He says, If you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And it'll never happen. Verse 4, you're actually severed from Christ. And it's not an accident he uses that word because he's talking about circumcision, which is severing a small part of flesh the foreskin, to remove it as a sign of the old covenant. And he says, you think that by severing that little piece of flesh that somehow you're going to be closer to Jesus? Actually, if you accept that, Gentiles, you're severed from Christ. You're like that little piece of flesh that's thrown away. Severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That is strong language. That's a warning. And it's a warning we need to take seriously. And of course, he, he deals with, does that mean we just sin that grace would abound? He deals with that in Romans. He answers that question, may it never be. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But isn't it amazing that if you preach the gospel rightly, The question that is implied to come up is not, well, man, i got to obey the law. The question that's implied that comes up is, well, could I sin that grace would abound? I mean, more sin, Jesus seems greater. He died for more sin if I commit more sin. And so we need to be careful in our preaching of Christ, in our reminding ourselves of the gospel, that we don't let legalism and adding works to our life creep in. And it creeps in in so many ways. It creeps in first as a good idea and wisdom. And man, that sounds like, that sounds great. And then it works for you in your life, and then you got to tell others. And then you say, well, man, this really worked for me in my life, and I did this, this, and this, and it worked. And then you, you see it work in others' lives, and then you say, ah, oh, this must be the way it works. I'm always leery when I see titles of books that say, doing something God's way. As if that way is the only way and every other way is wrong. I can think of a few doing something God's way books that are, that are, that are good. I'm, I'm actually using a marriage counseling book that says preparing for marriage God's way with uh, Gabe and Micaiah. But I've also heard, know of some doing things God's way that is very bad and legalistic and setting you up for all of this. We need to be careful of of how we're thinking and and what we're thinking earns us favor with God. You know what earns you favor with God? The finished work of Christ. You know what brings joy to God's heart? Your faith in Christ. Your trust in Him and reliance upon Him. You casting yourself on the rock of ages. Building your house on a firm foundation, not on sand. That's what pleases God. Cling to Christ. 
Uh, Martin Luther, I have a quote here. Hopefully the, you can see it. He says this about this idea. Just as someone on a ship is drowned, regardless of the part of the ship from which he falls into the sea, so someone who falls away from grace cannot help perishing. It doesn't matter which part of the ship you fall off of. You're still going to drown. The desire to be justified by the law, therefore, is shipwreck. It is exposure to the surest peril of eternal death. What can be more insane and wicked than to want to lose the grace and favor of God and retain the law of Moses, whose retention makes it necessary for you to accumulate wrath and every other evil for yourself? Now, if those who seek to be justified on the basis of the moral law fall away from grace, where, I ask, will those fall who in their self-righteousness seek to be justified on the basis of their traditions and vows to the lowest depths of hell? See, in contrast, if we take all of these negatives that Paul is mentioning, and he said, if you try to keep the law, Christ is of no benefit, You're obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ and you fall away from grace. Let's just flip it. In contrast, faith in Christ is a real benefit because he kept the law on our behalf, all of it, and union with him means we will remain forever in in grace. We are connected to Christ and he is of infinite benefit and advantage to us forever. Every blessing Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 says. And the Father has blessed us with those because we're in Him. And so Paul goes on to say in verses 5 to 6, there is a blessedness of life that is in the Spirit. Here's the contrast. What, what is the answer if we're not trying to, to add a bunch of rules to our life and live to earn God's favor? How are we to live? What's the answer? Paul gives it to us in 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now think about what he's saying here. He says we are waiting for a hope of righteousness. So I don't think he's talking about justification here. He's talking about the day when we actually will be righteous. It's a hope. And we're waiting for it. Which means it's in the future. It's not now. We haven't become righteous in our actions and our deeds. We are counted righteous in Christ. But there will be a day when we will be righteous, just like Christ. And that day we are waiting for. And it is a hope. And hope in the Bible is an earnest expectation that it will happen. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You can guarantee that you're going to get it. It's just like having it in writing. I remember the first, the first job I got in the oil refinery, I was told by the vice president, we're going to give you a vehicle allowance. We're going to give you $450 a month. That'll cover your vehicle. Uh, that'll cover gas. And that will cover your insurance. Shook his hand over a table. When I got hired, went out and bought a Jeep. Beautiful Jeep Wrangler, brand new. Gunmetal blue, hard top, big tires. I miss that Jeep. I bought this Jeep. I was 22, 23 years old. 
Month one goes by, month two goes by, month three goes by, I don't see the vehicle allowance on my paycheck. So I go back in and talk to the vice president and say, hey, you were going to give me a vehicle allowance. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, I talked to the client and they wouldn't pay for it. Sorry, bud. You're out of luck. And now he's got me because I'm working the job and I have to work the job to provide for my family and now I'm out. So what did I have to do? Sell the Jeep. At a loss. In the parking lot of fries. One tear still to this day rolling down my face. Right? That, I got that thing, and I was believing what this guy said, and it was a pipe dream. It was an empty promise. And so that hope was shattered to pieces on the ground. And I learned a little discernment, and I learned a little wisdom, and I learned to get it in writing. <laughs> right? We have something better than writing. I mean, we have it in writing right here, don't we? The Word of God, which is true, and God never lies. But we also have the Spirit of God sealed upon our hearts, indwelling us as the down payment and the pledge that everything the Father has promised, He is going to fulfill in Christ. And so when we say we are waiting for the hope of righteousness, that ought to cause you to say, Amen. Look what else He says here in verse 5. He says, It is life in the Spirit. We are waiting, look at what He says, through the Spirit. Our waiting is not even a work dependent upon our strength. It doesn't matter how big our faith is, how strong our faith is, how large our faith is, because our waiting isn't ultimately about the greatness of us. It's we're waiting through the Spirit. It's the Spirit's power in us. It's His ministry to us. We're waiting in the power that God provides through the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 1 is, oh, by the way, it's resurrection power. It's the power that the Father used when he raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that's at work in your lives. And then he says we are waiting by faith. We're waiting by faith. Not through faith, but by faith. Faith is the conduit that connects us to Christ and the Spirit His ministry is to give us hope in Christ so that as we wait, we keep in step with the Spirit, we're led by Him, we're guided by Him, and we bear fruit for the glory of Christ to the praise of the Father. And so we, by faith, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness And so that's why he goes on to say, hey, guess what? Verse 6, in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. If you think that's the argument, you've missed the whole point. That doesn't count for anything, one or the other. Here's what counts. Here's what's important. Faith working in love. Faith working through love. See, love is the primary fruit of the Spirit. Look down at verse 22. It's what starts the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. In fact, Jonathan Edwards in his Charity and His Fruits, he says love is the fountainhead of all the other fruits. That actually the fruit of the Spirit is love and love is manifested in all these other ways in your relationships because joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. You need other people to manifest that. And so he says, Paul says, love, the primary fruit of the Spirit, is poured out through the Spirit into our hearts 
as we wait by faith. Now, the question arises, why isn't faith called a work? Why isn't faith the same thing as a work? For that answer, Paul doesn't mention it here, but if we turn over to Romans 4, I want you to see the answer. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he takes an illustration that everybody in that day and everybody today is familiar with is let's compare faith and works to the idea of earning a wage versus receiving a gift. If you work and have the mindset of an employee, earning God's favor is like a wage and legalism is your job description. And as you work, and if you have the mindset of an employee and God is your employer, you work and God responds by giving you your wage in blessings, in favor. And Paul says that is not what the gospel is. That's not what living by faith is. To live by faith is not to have the mindset of an employee. It's to have the mindset of someone in need who needs a gift. They need to receive a gift that they could never earn and they could never buy. God is the one who does all the work through Christ and faith connects me to Christ and so I receive a gift. So faith is not a work. Faith is simply receiving the gift, connecting us to the one who did all the work. Justification by faith and life in the Spirit then are two sides of the same coin. Neither one is present without the other. True saving faith produces Christ-like love. Faith works through love. Faith is the root and love is the fruit. And so genuine saving faith is never alone. That's how John Calvin said it. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It actually produces something in us. And here Paul says, faith works into love. It manifests love. It produces what he's going to say later in Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Which, oh, by the way, against those things, there is no law. So, the first question, where is hope found? Where is hope found? This is incredibly important, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but when I go through deep trials, I need hope. When the darkness will not lift, I need hope. And I need true hope. I don't need a pipe dream. I don't need empty promises. Those don't do me any good. Those don't settle my soul. They don't deliver me. They don't liberate me. They don't change me. What I need is true hope. And so Paul says, you want to know where true hope is found? True hope isn't found looking into yourself and thinking that somehow you've arrived to the level of Christianity where you can do good works that are going to please God and he's going to respond by giving you his blessings. Where true hope is found is in his son. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in union with Him, if you want Christ to be a benefit to you, you need to cast yourself by faith onto the Lord Jesus. 
Spurgeon got in trouble with one of his elders because in his sermons he kept repeating the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And one of his elders snarkily remarked to him after his 10th or 20th time saying it and said, Spurgeon, we know your hands are empty. Can you think of another illustration? And Spurgeon said, I think that one's good enough, basically. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but no, I think that one's good enough and I'm going to keep using it. But isn't that a great picture? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Isaac Watts has a hymn. I, I love the, the, the verse in the hymn where he says, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. What was my pride, I count my shame, my loss. And I take it all and nail it to the glory of your cross. This is the hope that we have in Christ. And it's the only place where true hope is found. This is why we are so concerned in this pulpit to preach the sufficiency of Christ. I know we say this all the time, but Christ is all you need. He is sufficient to save and deliberate, to liberate and to change and to deliver. And our problem is, is we run to so many other functional saviors that we think are going to save and deliver us. We run to so many other experts. We run to so many other solutions and they never save and they never deliver and they never change. And we're left in the same state or a worse state than before. And Christ is able to save and liberate and change and deliver because he's sufficient This is why Paul is so worked up and so angry. You are trying to attack the sufficiency of my Savior. You are trying to tell my flock and my people that they need to go somewhere else for hope. And in doing so, you're telling them to abandon and leave their sufficient Christ. And I'm going to fight you with everything that I have. You need to run to Christ and flee to him. It's what I need to do. It's why we say preach the gospel to one another and to yourselves all the time. This is who Christ is and this is what he's done. He is glorious and he's supreme and he ought to be the height of our affections. And the way we're going to kill sin is not by doing a to-do list. The way we're going to kill sin is have a greater affection for Jesus than we do our sin. You want to be delivered from porn? You want to stop looking at it? You want to stop giving your life over to it and be consumed by it? Have a greater affection for Christ. He is the one who's going to change you. And you'll kill sin by starving it out. This is who he is. This is why Paul is worked up. That's why I'm getting worked up a little bit. And then he says, what actually produces righteousness? That's his second question here. What actually produces righteousness? Turn back to Galatians. You might be there. Galatians 5. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Whoa, Paul. Strong language. 
What Paul's concerned about is what actually produces righteousness. He had said in verse 5, we're waiting for the hope of righteousness, that day when we're actually going to be like Jesus. Won't that be wonderful? We won't commit sins of the tongue anymore. We won't slander or lie or malign. We won't give lip service to people, be hypocrites. That'll be a wonderful day. It'll be like Christ. He says, what's going to produce righteousness is the gospel, is essentially what he's arguing. Because the cross of Christ is the gospel, and if he were to preach legalism, the offense of the cross and freedom and justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone would be removed. And so he says, by the Spirit, in fact, turn back to Galatians 3.3. Look what he says there. Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So this is the same idea he brings in here. He says, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness through the Spirit. And he tells the Galatians, you were running towards that hope of righteousness really well. He uses a picture of a race. He says, you were running towards the goal really well, but all of the sudden, somebody hindered you. And that word hinder is a vivid word picture. It was used of um, someone who comes along and, and breaks up a road to prevent progress, sabotaging the race, putting down nail strips so that tires blow out. That's the idea. Who hindered you? Who derailed you? Who sabotaged your race? Well, he knows who it was. It was these people, these Judaizers teaching legalism. And what he says in verses 7 to 9 is that legalism is infectious. It is like a cancer. And it creeps in. This false teaching, verse 7, it is a hindrance. It derails and sabotages your faith and your race towards righteousness. And in verse 8, he says, it's not from the Father. It's not from the one who calls. And the one who calls in Galatians is the Father. It's not from him. This persuasion, this, this thing that you have been persuaded of and you're convinced it is the secret to the Christian life, being circumcised and, and following after the Mosaic law and, and keeping it. He said that persuasion is not from the Father who, by the way, gave the Mosaic Law to the people of Israel. The Father is also the one that gave you Christ and the gospel and said that is no longer the rule of your faith. Now the gospel in Christ is. And he says, if you're going to be persuaded to abandon the life of faith, you're being persuaded by somebody other than God the Father, the one who calls And then he says in verse 9, this legalism, it isn't just affecting you, it affects the whole church. Our Christian lives are not in a vacuum. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When we live with sin in our life, or we live with false teaching in our life, or we live with um, unwise things in our life, it affects the people of God, it affects the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, verse 9. And this can mean one of two things. uh, Commentators say it can either mean that this legalistic mentality will soon corrupt the whole church, 
Because if you think you figured out the secret to the Christian life, you're going to share it with others and you'll get a little following and then you'll corrupt the whole church. That's what was happening in Galatia. Or Paul could have a more individual idea that legalistic self-reliance in one little area of your life will end up destroying your whole life. And I don't think either of those are mutually exclusive. So he says it's infectious. And it doesn't actually produce righteousness. It's not able to produce righteousness. And in verses 10 to 12, he says only the gospel can produce righteousness. That's why he says in verse 10, I'm confident actually in the Lord Jesus that you will take no other view because I know that you've been born again by the Spirit. And so I know you're going to respond to this gospel because the Spirit's not going to leave you alone. And he also knows that those who are troubling you, who are preaching another gospel, will bear the penalty whoever they are. Over in Philippians 1, Paul writes to the Philippians in verse 6 and says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so even though Paul is giving this strong warning, don't fall into this. If you fall into this and buy into this, you're going to be severed from Christ and you've fallen away from grace and Christ is of no benefit to you. He also here balances it out in verse 10 and says, I have confidence in the Lord Jesus that those of you who are born again, you'll receive this teaching, you'll respond to it, and you will amen what I'm saying. The troublers will bear the penalty from God, verse 10. And then he puts in this verse 11, which might make a little bit, it might be a little confusing to us, but it seems to be that these people were saying they preached the same gospel as Paul, and Paul also taught circumcision, perhaps because he had Timothy circumcised. And so Paul doesn't teach anything different than us. But he says, no, I do actually teach something different than them because if I was teaching the same thing as them, I wouldn't be persecuted. And what he says in verse 11 is, listen, you by your preaching of the gospel cannot remove the offense of the cross. What is so offensive about the cross? What is offensive about the cross is that it destroys human pride and human effort. What the cross says is you can never be good enough or strong enough or smart enough or bright enough to work out your own salvation. You are a sinner by nature and by choice, and your actions and your nature are going to send you to hell apart from Christ, where you will bear eternal conscious torment away from the presence of the Lord forever, and it's what you deserve. That's offensive. That is offensive. You might be offended right now by what I just said. But the good news of the gospel is that the Father loved this world so much, He didn't leave us in this state. He sent His Son to be our substitute, to bear the penalty we could never bear, to live the life we could never live, and you receive Him as a gift by faith, and you can have righteousness and life and hope and freedom, and you can be changed and you can be delivered by whatever you're facing today. And so receive Christ, cling to Christ, trust in Him, hope in Him, receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And you will never be put to shame. You will never be disappointed. Paul says, this is the message I preach. And if I were trying to preach, you could earn God's favor. I would remove the offense of the cross. 
You see, the cross either makes people, here's what John Piper says, ecstatically happy because their sins are forgiven or vehemently angry because every ground of boasting is removed. There's, it, it polarizes the world. Just read comments underneath Christian articles. Actually, don't do that. That'll just torment your righteous soul. Don't do that. And then in verse 12, Paul prays this imprecatory prayer against the troublers. He says, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. In other words, he's saying they would do a lot less harm if they went ahead and castrated themselves than if they circumcised you. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty strong language. But what he's concerned about is the harm to the church. And he says, I wish they would just take care of themselves. If they think that's what makes them holy, go ahead and emasculate themselves. Be all in, in other words. But don't trouble my church. That's why he told the Philippians back in chapter 3. Turn over to Philippians. We'll close here. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's those who are adding circumcision. But I want to actually end with verses 12 to 14 of Philippians 3. Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is our application? What what, What should we do today? leaving here from this message. This is what I think we ought to do. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made righteousness my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. This is what we ought to do. Live out of who we are in Christ. Press on by faith through the Spirit for the hope of righteousness that Christ is waiting to give us. The upward call of the prize in Christ Jesus. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And if you've fallen down this morning, dust yourself off in repentance, stand back up and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and run the race with endurance. Father, thank you for this word. We love you. We're grateful for what we've received in Christ. Forgive us, Father, if we have given in to legalism, thinking that somehow by our actions we are better than others or we will earn your favor or we are more spiritual. Everything that we have comes from Christ. Thank you. May we, by the Spirit, run the race with endurance by faith, living out of who we are in Christ, glorifying you with our lives, bearing fruit, faith working through love. That's what we want to be characterized by. So do this work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.